Ladies and gentlemen, we are so thrilled to tell you about our first live event, the first 2NJB live event at Soho House on July 11th. Uh, at, it starts at 8 p.m. We're going to put an RSVP link, uh, attach an RSVP link to this recording. And please come show up, ask us questions, meet us in person. We'd be so excited to meet you guys. We're going to be interviewing Michael Oren about his new book, 2048, The Rejuvenated State. It's all about the future of the state of Israel, what it, Israel will look like in 2048, 100 years after its founding. So please come by. RSVP uh, on the a link attached. It starts at 8 p.m. on July 11th, Tuesday at Soho in Tel Aviv. It's a salon event. Uh, and Soho is uh, in Jaffa, Yefet 27, so you get to see the beautiful old city of Jaffa. Come say hello. It's sure to be a captivating conversation. We're really excited to see you guys there. See you soon. This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. to forget, but we recently had yet another mini-war with Gaza. In Tel Aviv, we experienced moments of running to bomb shelters, but that's nothing compared to the anxiety and turmoil experienced by those living in villages near the Gaza border. They face daily bombardment with mere seconds to find safety, a testament to their incredible perseverance and strength. Now look, we all know opinions about Gaza are like podcasts. Everyone's got one, and no one really cares about yours. But truly, understanding the reality on the ground requires hearing from those who live there. Joining us today is Amir Tibon, one of Israel's accomplished young journalists and a resident of Kibbutz Nachal Oz, the closest community to Gaza in Israel. With his invaluable insights, Amir sheds light on the challenges faced by the people in this turbulent region. Amir Tibon is Haaretz newspaper's diplomatic correspondent. He was previously U.S. news editor for Haaretz, and before that, the paper's Washington, D.C. correspondent from 2017 to 2020. His writing on Israel has been published in The Atlantic, Foreign Affairs, The New Yorker, Tablet, and other leading U.S. publications. Amir lives in Kibbutz Nachaloz with his wife, and two daughters. Get ready for a captivating conversation as we explore the aftermath of the recent conflict in Gaza, along with Israel-USA relations and the upcoming elections in the States and its effect on Israel. We're thrilled to have Amir Tibon on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been listening for a long time, wow. including a bit as, uh, you know, uh, a competitor when I was uh, doing the Haaretz Weekly podcast, and really, I'm very happy to have this conversation. Thank you so much. Wow, Thanks that's an coming. honor. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so where should we start? Um, how, how did the war go for you? The last round, you mean, the, the fighting with the Islamic Jihad? Yeah. What was it, in, in April? Yeah. In, in, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I don't know if I even call it a war, you know? I mean, it was five days. Um, it started in the middle of the night. Um, around two or three in the morning, you know, we were sleeping and uh, we suddenly hear these huge booms that wake us up. When you live in the Gaza border area and uh, Miri, my wife and I, we've been living there on and off, you can say, for it's going to be six years now. 
Uh, we had a bit of an adventure in the U.S. in the middle. We can talk about that later. Uh, but when you live in that area, you learn to distinguish whether it's us bombing them or them bombing us just from the sound. Um, and we realized that this time it was us bombing them and that it was a retaliation for the events that happened a week before when they were bombing us. And when you live in that area, you develop a sense of understanding when it's just like a one thing day and it's one night gonna stand. be, yeah, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and basically, you know, you have to shelter a bit and stay close to the, you know, the, 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 whether it's the safe room in the house or shelters that are spread throughout the community, but you can stay home or it's going to be a week long event. And then you have to leave because with two young children, uh, our older daughter is three years old. Mm. Um, there's nothing you can do with them in that kind of situation. There are seven seconds between the launching of a rocket or a missile or a mortar from Gaza and uh, the time you have to be in shelter in Kibbutz Nachalos. Seven seconds is the official version. Sometimes you hear the boom and then there's a siren that goes off. There's nothing you can do with kids in that kind of situation. You have to evacuate. And so we packed our bags in the middle of the night. By the morning, we were ready to go. We went to relatives here in the sent in the beating uh, heart of Israel in Tel Aviv and we stayed for most of the fighting um, you know waited for it to be over by the time we got back I have to say this round was easier than previous ones I compare it to Guardian of the Walls in 2021 um, that was I think a 10 or 11 day affair and the community was bombarded constantly during the fighting and, and it was much more difficult to come back to normal life this time four or five days a bit like the events we had in the summer of 2022 you remember the breaking dawn operation that's mm -hmm. how it was called i think yeah. under your ear lapid also an easier experience um and of course the most difficult one you can compare to is the war in the th summer of 2014 protective edge that was a 60-day affair yeah so in our part of the country four or five days it's okay We'll get through it. <laughs> but uh, you weren't living there in 2014. I moved there with uh, Miri in the summer of 2014, immediately after Operation Protective Edge. Basically what happened, if you want to get the, the full story, I was covering that. That was really a war. And I was covering it on the ground quite a lot. I was at the time working for Walla News. I was not at Haaretz yet. And I was a diplomatic correspondent like I am today, you know, flying with the prime minister to the White House and the UN and things like that. But I always had an attraction to places where more interesting things happen. I've been over the years to Syria and Ukraine and the Kurdish areas. And so obviously when a war was raging an hour's drive from Tel Aviv, and that's how much it takes from Tel Aviv to Nachal Oz when there's no traffic. I mean, if I got out of your nice apartment here right now and got in my car and drove to Nachal Oz. If there is no unusual traffic, it will take an hour and 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So obviously I had to go there and cover it. And I was living in Tel Aviv at the time. And what happened during that summer, I really became captivated with the place and I kind of fell in love with it. There was a bit of a challenge because I, you know, I, by the end of the war, I really felt like I wanted to move there. Um, and Miri and I, as many couples in Tel Aviv, always had this dream about one day moving to a smaller community and you know raising our kids in a place closer to nature a lot of people talk about it but actually doing it is complicated when that war was over i told her listen now there's an opportunity a lot of these communities on the gaza border lost 
population after the war because people didn't want to stay there. It was 60 days of fighting. It was hard. Specifically in Achalos, there was a terrible tragedy. Um, a four-year-old child was killed in one of the last days of the fighting, Daniel Tregerman. It mm-hmm. was a very famous story at the time. And the communities were eager for young couples to move there. And I told her, this is our chance to actually do it and move to a kibbutz, um, a beautiful green place with a sense of community, and actually not too far from Tel Aviv. It's not like moving to the Golan Heights, where it's a three-hour drive. Um, there is a train station in Sderot, which is the largest town in the area, and it's an hour on the train to Tel Aviv. Um, and I'm very lucky um, that uh, Miri said, okay, let's try it. She's an adventurous person. We moved there a month after the war was over. Everybody thought we were crazy. I mean, our friends in Tel Aviv thought we were crazy. Our new friends in the kibbutz thought we were crazy. I have to say, with a perspective of 2023, almost nine years later, um, I think... It we, was a mistake. No, no, I, th- I think... <laughs> we were crazy. I th- we, well, maybe crazy, but I think people realize today that it actually makes a lot of sense as well. Really? Yeah, and I think two things contributed to it. Number one is the housing crisis in Israel because you see that more and more people are moving to our part of the country. There is a boom, not from Gaza, but a boom on the Gaza border, a real estate boom. I mean, if you come to Sderot and Netivot, the two towns in this area, we're talking about thousands of new apartments being built every year. And if you come to the Kibbutzim, the Moshavim, the smaller communities, there is a waiting list everywhere today for houses, including in Nachal Oz. There is a waiting list today families who want to join this kibbutz that is 800 meters from the border with Gaza and officially the most bombarded community in Israel. And people want to come there and raise their kids there. How do you explain it, though? So part of it, first, I think, is really the housing prices, which are very different than here in Tel Aviv. But a second, more important part, I think, is the sense of community. And that got strengthened a lot during COVID. Now, if I want to connect it to our personal story, so we came there summer of 2014, We lived there for three years. We also got married in the kibbutz. It was the first wedding after the war. We did it in the pool in the kibbutz, 400 guests. It was amazing. And to bring all our friends from Tel Aviv to see what is this beautiful place that we moved to. And then I got a job offer from Haaretz to go to Washington, D.C. and cover the Trump presidency. And of course, for a journalist, that's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Well, maybe twice. We'll see next year (laughs) if it comes back. Um, uh, I thought it would be only one term. And I thought it's something I cannot say no to. And so we went to the U.S. and we lived for three years in uh, Washington, D.C. I had a wonderful time there professionally. And um, also, you know, it was a lot of fun. And the more important decision for us was not going to Nachalos the first time. We were a young couple, no kids, adventurous. The more important decision was coming back there. At the end of 2020, after Trump lost the... Well, he didn't lose, right? It was stolen from him. Of course. Um, uh, (laughs) It was rigged. uh, Yeah. yeah. But but after Trump lost the election and and we came back to Israel, we decided we're going back to the kibbutz. And this time it was a more important decision. We already had one daughter. Our oldest was born in the U.S. And it was during the height of COVID. And we thought the kibbutz is the best place to be right now. There was this community that is supportive and... You know your neighbors and people help each other. During our first weeks, our next door neighbors in the kibbutz, they have three uh, girls and they were all in the midst of, um, you know, one after the other catching COVID and being in isolation. And we helped them, you know, run errands and do things. And when they got out of it, out of the, you know, forced lockdown, the first thing they did 
they baked a chocolate cake with the girls and brought it to us and left it on our porch. It's a small story of community. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are looking for that these days. And that's the second reason why there is this growth demographically in our part of the country. But still, like as a parent, to take, your, to take this huge risk, some would say it's irresponsible. Yes, we have heard that argument. And um, it's hard to counter it because at the end of the day, you live in a da- dangerous place compared to other parts of the country. It's true. There are also great advantages for our children uh, growing up in Nahal Oz. Um, the community and, and this nature that surrounds you and the feeling that you can just walk safely from your home to anywhere else because there's no cars in between and great education. There are a lot of advantages. And I will name another one, I think. Although it's, a, it's not as relevant for my girls. They're very young. But as you grow older, the sense of purpose. I think is very important. Uh, I grew up as a child in northern Israel on the border with Lebanon. At the time, my father was in the military and he was doing a lot of time inside Lebanon. Um, and we were living in several communities very close to that border. And I grew up with this phenomenon of Katusha missiles from Lebanon. Um, and, you know, there was this sense of danger. And I remember when I was, let's say, six, seven, eight-year-olds having conversations about this with my parents. Why are we living here and what does it mean? And I also think there is some advantage to that as well, the sense of purpose and of doing something that you believe in. Um, But obviously, it comes with the challenges that I'm not going to sweep under the rug and pretend they don't exist. They're very real. It's very important when you live in this area to know when is the right moment to take a step back and and take your kids out of harm's way. Because on the daily level, it's a beautiful, quiet, serene place, but it can get dangerous in a second. And the last thing I will say about this, it's not actually the war times that are the most difficult. It's the in-between kind of situation. When there is a real war, so you know, okay, now we get out of here for a few days, we go to Tel Aviv. The problem is these periods when there is a rocket or a missile every three or four days that catches you in the middle of you know, being at home or being outside. Or there was recently an event when rockets were fired around 3.30 p.m., which is the time when people pick up their kids from kindergarten. And it's not enough to drive you out of home. It's not a full war, but it's enough to rattle you and really change your day. Those are the most difficult situations. And I think when you talk to people in our area, everywhere, in Kibbutzim, in Sderot, in Etivot, this is what drives people crazy. It's not the war times. It's the in-between times when there's no quiet, but no absolute emergency either. Hmm. But do you, do you see it as Zionism as far as you're concerned? For me, yes, definitely. Okay. I believe it's part of the equation. And coming from a more left-wing liberal place, that's also part of the equation. Um, I believe it's important to strengthen these specific communities on the border and that what we're doing there matters for the country. And at the same time, I like the fact that there is a border marked uh, coming from a perspective of a Zionist Zionist left-winger who believes that one of Israel's biggest problems is the lack of borders. I think it's important to protect the borders that we do have. And how, how do you see it as part of Zionism? Meaning why live, I mean, there could be a border that's well protected and guarded, but without communities. Uh, Well, 
there is a debate about that. Um, I think from the early days of the of the Zionist movement, do you need civilian communities to protect the border? Um, and I think, yeah, it makes a difference that you actually have communities that serve that purpose. And Nachalos specifically is a very interesting case because if you look at a map of the Gaza border area, you will see that there are several kibbutzim that form like a line, um, you know, opposed to the border. Mefalsim, Kfar Aza, Alumim, which is a religious kibbutz, Saad, which is another religious kibbutz, Be'eri. But Nachalos sticks out. It's closer to Gaza than all of these other communities, and it's like that on purpose. It was constructed that way. There was a logic behind it. All of these communities were considered at the time, we're talking about the you know early 1950s, as a line of defense for the bigger cities and towns behind them. And Nachal Oz was built as a front on the front, as a community that is a step closer than all the other ones. It really mm-hmm. sits right on the border. For the real fanatics. It's like a military <laughs> formation. In, uh, in the beginning, it was a military community, what we call it you know, the Nachal. This is, we're going into mm-hmm. really a bit of a niche here for uh, the podcast crowd. Uh, but it was civilized at some point mm-hmm. um, the 1950s, and it has remained a civilian community ever since. But yeah, right on the border and surrounded by military installations. Um, it, are there are there uh, is there military preparedness in the the community itself? There is a group of residents who are trained um, to respond at times of emergency, and uh, think it's very important. And there is some level of alert and awareness that everybody gets trained on. Um, we don't sleep with guns under our pillows. I know you come from Alabama, so yeah. <laughs> maybe there are places where that's more common. But in Nachalos, two guns actually. Two guns. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no pillows. <laughs> <laughs> a pillow under the guns. Exactly. Um, not, not not so much in Nachalos, but also okay. you have to remember we have military presence around us. Yeah. If there was not but that military presence, maybe we would. You don't feel a sense of camaraderie. With, camaraderie is the word. With, I don't with, know. With, with with the settlers. In the sense that, you know, in Twitter arguments, the, the most basic thing people, the left says to them, each time a settler dies in a gun attack, whatever, what are you doing there? You don't want to die. Step out of there. Um, I, I don't, uh, I never use this kind of language. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a big fan of the settlement project, but I don't think it's fair to tell people that this is a price, you know, to pay for the place where they live. My complaint is more to the government of Israel, um, not to the in, any individuals. And, you know, I have friends who live there, family. Um, so I don't take it to the personal place. I think the main distinction between Nachalos and the settlements is, again, the question of the border. And if Israel were to mark a border, I think some of the settlements would remain within it today, mm-hmm. um, right? If, if there was any movement, I don't see it happen on the horizon at all. In fact, I think we're going in the opposite direction. I think we're going in the direction of basically erasing completely the old border of 1967, eliminating it, and living in a new kind of one-state reality, which we can talk for hours what it would look like, what would be the political arrangements. I don't think we have the answers to all of that. Um, but if we were to mark a border, I think then some of the settlements would perhaps share more with Nachalos. Today, it's a very different situation. And also, you have to remember, Nachalos is located opposite the Gaza Strip, not inside the Gaza Strip, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a community that was very close to Nachalos from the other side of the border, Netzarim, 
which mm-hmm. I think was the most controversial settlement that existed in Gaza before the 2005 disengagement, because it was so close to Gaza City. I mean, most of the other settlements were more far away from the big city, right? There was Gush Katif in the south, and then there were these, I think, three or four settlements in the north, but Netzarim was very close to the city of Gaza. That's a million people. Um, you could maybe compare it to the Jewish settlement in Hebron today. Um, and so that's another major difference, because here there is a border, and over there there isn't a border. Some of my settler friends say, well, you know what, we are trying to mark the border today by being where we are, and that's similar to what Nachalos and these other communities did. Mm-hmm. I would be open to that argument if they had a vision of dividing the land that is, let's say, not the 1967 borders, but also not the biblical borders of Israel. Um, but how does that vision look like? That's where the conversation usually ends. I don't feel like the right wing in Israel today has an answer to that question. The left wing has an answer. It just, not, maybe it's not relevant anymore, but at least it has an answer. The right wing doesn't really have an answer to that question. What should be the borders and the arrangements? But how many people were living in the Gaza Strip that had to be evacuated in this, 2005? This engagement was 8,000 people who were inv- evacuated. In, in the West in Bank, the West Bank have- we would talk about much larger numbers. And again, that is after you calculate in the fact that most of the larger settlements will remain and that... You'd have you to know, evacuate, what, 200,000, well, 250? There are different numbers. I think it's much less. I think you could draw a reasonable map where it would be 100,000, but still, that's a much larger number than what we talk about in the disengagement. It would be much more difficult. And in fact, I'm beginning to think, like many people, it's just not relevant and impossible anymore, and we have to think beyond it. There is no discussion about this in the state of Israel today. We're so busy with other issues, not that they don't matter. Um, but on this issue... Where's the public debate? I mean, yeah. we're not seeing any new there ideas. It was about annexing with, with Trump. Yes. That's a beginning of something, could have been, and also the Jordan Valley, yeah. right? Those two parts are in consensus. If we were to annex them, hmm. we would start to see a kind of a solution, maybe. No? Well, Even the movement of the embassy was a bit in, a, in I, that direction. I, I think the issue of annexation, to me, is, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about it. On the one hand... I think it could create a de facto apartheid reality because you basically have two systems of law um, in which there is one population that has a lot of rights and another population that has, you know, much, much less. On the other hand, it could move by creating this reality, the discussion into the territory where we don't have any talk today about solutions and maybe this would force it, you know, this kind of big change in reality. Eventually, what happened with the annexation, I think, is that Trump and Netanyahu preferred to go for the Abraham Accords. Mm -hmm. And this was the price to pay to get the Emiratis and the Bahrainis to show that there was something in it for the Palestinians. You know, this is a question for historians. Would the Palestinians have had a stronger hand diplomatically and in the court of public opinion if there was annexation? And they would have, you know, said, okay, we're dismantling the PA, corrupt entity that doesn't really represent, I think, most of the Palestinians today, and we are now moving to demand equal rights under one state. I believe this is where it's going to go eventually anyway, because if you're a Palestinian today living in Nablus or in Ramallah or in Bethlehem, what kind of future do you have except this idea of being given the same rights that an Israeli living 15 minutes from you in Jerusalem enjoys? What's the vision? But does that really make any sense? Because these people 
or I mean, how can you be a citizen of a country that you absolutely deeply despise and hope for the it will down it, of- it will re- it will demand a big shift in the purposes and the uh, goals of the Palestinian national movement. But there are people who argue that movement is already dead anyway. Because a Palestinian state is not going to be created. I think we, you know, we just spoke about how difficult it would be to create that. Or you have, what, Israel will evacuate 100,000 settlers? I don't see that happening. Um, but the, is that something that uh, the average Palestinian in the West Bank internalizes? Or could internalize? Well, you see polling that shows clearly that even today, you do have, let's say, sometimes a plurality, sometimes a significant minority, you know, the 40, 40 something percent of Israelis and Palestinians who say they support the two-state solution. But when you ask them, do you think it's viable? Do you think it can happen? That's where the numbers crash. Who believes it will happen? Who thinks we'll have a two-state solution two or three years from today? And that has to make room for other ideas and uh, alternatives, maybe terrible alternatives. I'm not advocating for any of this, just to be clear. If you ask me what I would like to see, I, I still think the two-state solution is the, it's not a good, it's not the best. I think it's better than the alternative, but I don't think it's on the table anymore. And at some point, maybe after Mahmoud Abbas is gone, right, he's 87 years old now, you will have a Palestinian leader who will say, listen, we're not getting this state that we've been talking about. Israel is not taking down these settlements. We should transform back to the pre-Oslo days and just demand equal rights in one state. For Israel, that would cause a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, that, again, in our politics, we're not discussing today. We're busy with other issues. Um, and, you know, there, it was interesting. A few days before we are having this conversation, Netanyahu gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal. He spoke about the judicial overhaul and other issues, but there was a question there about the Palestinian Authority. And he said, well, of course, I don't want to dismantle the Palestinian Authority. That was, I mean, I, I want to keep it. And Good impression. Uh, I've, I've had better. It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit late in the day. Um, but, uh, you know, I tend to think Netanyahu lies quite a lot, but I think he was truthful on that. I think he wants to keep the Palestinian Authority because the Palestinian Authority today is the most significant buffer between Israel and this nightmare scenario of the Palestinians in the West Bank, we can argue, right, there's arguments between the left and the right about how many Palestinians live in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. Some people say it's three and a half million, some people say it's two and a half million. Either way, the Palestinian Authority is the main buffer between those people and Israel seeking responsibility for every aspect of their lives. So, of course, he wants to keep the Palestinian Authority. I'm just not sure the Palestinians want to keep it. And what about Gaza? Like, what's the sentiment? Uh, what did people vote? Did Ben Gvir do well? In, in, in my area? Yeah. Did well, Ben Gvir get votes? It's interesting. The Gaza border area is a fascinating place to examine Israeli politics. Let's take my kibbutz and the town of Sderot. Eight minutes apart. Mm-hmm. Okay. Same security challenges. Rockets, mortars, tunnels, uh, incendiary balloons that cause fires, everything. Okay, we share the same trouble. In my kibbutz... Better falafel in the uh, Yeah, well, I don't know. Actually, we have uh, <laughs> a member of the kibbutz who makes amazing falafel. Okay. Eitan, I'll give him a shout out here. But uh, if you look in my kibbutz, in Nachalos, 85% in the last election voted for the anti-Netanyahu parties. Mm-hmm. Okay, Labour, Yashatid, Meretz... Uh, Benny Gantz, 85%. I include even Lieberman, a uh, few votes. 85. 
You go to Sderot, again, eight minutes away. This is, if my wife would listen, she would say, no, it's 13 minutes and you drive like crazy. But okay, <laughs> let's say 10 minutes. Let's, uh, same security challenges, 80, I think it was 82%, in the last second, voted for the pro-Netanyahu block of parties, Likud and all the religious parties. Now you ask yourself, if security is the most important issue to Israeli voters, and polls show that this is the reality, how can you explain this difference in the vote in two communities so close to one another that share the exact same security challenges? And I think this shows you that while security perhaps is the most important issue on people's minds, it, the way they interpret security has to do with their identity. And elections in Israel are really about identity. And that's why these numbers repeat themselves in all the elections that we've had in Israel. Five elections since 2019, right? Same numbers every time in Nachalos and in Isderot. And it shows you the, the power of identity and religiosity as the real deciding factors, in my opinion, in the Israeli electorate. And, and how do you, like, how do you, for example, perceive the problem of Gaza? Actually, when As you... As a lefty... So, so I'll tell you something. Actually, a... So there are all these, you know, forums and groups that meet from the kibbutzim and from Sderot or Netivot in our area where you have very right-wing people and very left-wing people. And again, you know, BB voters and anti-BB voters. When you start to talk about the practical questions of how to deal with Gaza, a lot of times you would be surprised that on that people actually agree. Like you will find people in Sderot who vote for, you know, maybe not Bengvir, but for Netanyahu or for Shas and will say, I'm not opposed to giving them, them meaning Gaza, uh, a seaport. Because if it will create a better economy there and there will be more for Hamas to lose, maybe it will serve our interests. There has been no opposition in the entire Gaza border area on the Israeli side to the fact that first the Bennett government and then the Netanyahu government continued it, has been allowing, I think, something like 15,000 day workers from Gaza to come every day into Israel, work mostly in construction, in, you know, Ashkelon area, some of them go even to Tel Aviv, and they come back at the end of the day to Gaza. You did not see people from the more right-wing parts of our area come and demonstrate in front of the areas uh, um, cross you know border crossing against this policy there Not, was debate about it in the in the right no there was debate about it but you didn't see that it was animating and the Israeli right wing knows how to demonstrate we saw that during the Bennett government when you had people coming every week to the houses of the different government ministers nothing yeah, not on this. that many I mean how many Listen, it was enough to break the spirit of some of these ministers and eventually cost, um, cost Bennett the government. But I, on this issue, I, I agree there's been debate about it on the right wing, but I didn't see any real strong opposition. And Netanyahu is continuing it. He's been in power half a year. That's enough time to reverse a policy if you think it's bad. Um, and so on the issue of Gaza, I think there is this consensus in our area that sometimes you have to use military force. Like, the, you know, the, 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 the flip point of that is that during the military operations, you don't see a lot of the left-wing people in our communities demonstrating against the military. Even under Netanyahu now, you didn't see people come and say, oh, Bibi is only doing this because he wants to kill the protests against the judicial overhaul. People realize that this is a security issue that needs to be dealt with, at least in our area. But doesn't it just go to show that no government really has done something like uh, determined determined um how would they say it 
like something used decisive. enough force, decisive, decisive, enough. Enough. decisive enough, exactly, to to tackle this. Otherwise, you would see the left. You know what I'm saying? But Everything was in consensus. We didn't flatten the neighborhood. Well, yeah, but I think on the other hand, if you go back to protective edge, a lot of force was used back then. And it was close to 60 days of war. How many people died? In Gaza? Yeah. Close to 2,000. And it's nothing. It, it's a nothing burger. Well, I obviously disagree. And yeah, I, and, of course. And I think at the same... Trying sa- to provoke you here. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> Listen, it's, you're going you're gonna to need a lot more. Um, but I think at the end of the day, we've seen historically in Israel's wars with mightier Arab enemies than the organization in Gaza, that there's always a limit to force. And Israel, as a country that relies on American support and w- wants to be part of the West, is not going to do the kind of things that uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir promised his voters during the election, which is that for every rocket fired from Gaza, we'll fire 40 or 50 back, right? Or we'll have 40 or 50 people killed there. And still, the, the force that Israel does use in Gaza is disproportionate to the you know other side's abilities. Everybody knows that. I mean, at the end of the day, in the last round of fighting, there was one Israeli citizen who was killed, an 80-year-old woman in Rehovot, who was killed in her home from a rocket that was launched from Gaza. And there were two Palestinians who were killed inside Israel. Or actually, no, one was killed and one was wounded, I think. Um, they were working in the fields of one of the Moshavim in our area, and a rocket caught them there and, and killed one of them. And in Gaza, I think it was 30-something people who were killed. Um, I mean, that's completely disproportionate. I'm not saying that as something that is bad about Israel or, you know, the fault of the IDF, but it's just reality. No, and but it is, it's not disproportionate in the... In the uh, sense of the risk that, you know, they're shooting rockets at Israeli citizens, then Israel must in, respond. I agree to that. the precision and the care taken, meaning they shoot rockets, like... This, you know, uh, yeah, everywhere. They're shooting in the dark. Yeah. And, and Israel tries to hit specific targets. I, I agree, I agree. All that is true. So I think but, maybe we should match their carelessness. Um... So my view of that, putting aside the morality, which I think is a very serious argument, and even putting aside the diplomatic issues and international legal issues, I just don't think it would work. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Syria, for example, where you, you've had this civil war with these atrocities going on and, you know, how many people are killed? But it's 200,000, 300,000, an entire country destroyed and no end in sight to that. I just don't think that the idea that we'll just use an you know extreme and more extreme and more extreme level of force is going to solve this. I believe that there has to be another leg to this, which is diplomatic, which is economical, which is creating incentives. And to if keep... it fails, oh yeah, you want to have a diplomatic leg, but you have to come to the table with some kind of you know I... it's like it's like entering a negotiation without an alternative. No, I think the alternative is clear because the situation in Gaza is dire. It's not like people in Gaza. There is a very, very small segment of the population that lives in relative welfare. And you can see there are even pictures of like, you know, like nice houses on the beach and stuff like that. But most of the population is extremely poor, has no future. It's a very young area, right? It's 2.2 million people. And I think we're talking about 70% unemployment among people in our age group under 40. I think it's not going to get better if it's just about the amount of force that Israel uses. We, I don't know. I think people and, and, who and are in a dire situation need to lose a lot more in order to make them feel it. Meaning if you're poor and you are your day-to-day sucks, 
And, you know, every once in a while we kill, I don't know, a thousand, and there's a couple million in Gaza. Your chances of living through an Israeli altercation is pretty, is not bad, meaning that the fear of Israel is not really that big. If when you attack Israel, mm -hmm. you know, tens of thousands of people perish. And I'm not saying we should aim to kill tens of thousands. I'm saying we should aim to demolish every single military site that we even have the smallest suspicion of existing in Gaza. We should drop a carpet bomb. That's, and then I'm saying if that's the, if that's the calculation, mm -hmm. then I think maybe, you know, like it's, it's like, it's like uh, homeless people. Right, they're they're risky. They walk in the street mm -hmm. between cars. Yeah. I think it takes a lot for them to really see death in the eyes, and then well, when they do, maybe they'll I, wake so, up for a second. So, not going into psychological questions because that's really not my field. I think again, the history of Israel's conflicts with the Palestinians and with the Arab world suggests that this is not going to work, and that the retaliation that we'll face for it would be very severe for us as well. Because in the last two rounds of fighting in Gaza, I want to remind you, we were not even fighting Hamas. We were fighting only the smaller Islamic Jihad. Tomatoes, problem. tomatoes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, but in terms of how what was felt in Israel, that's a big difference. And there was no real, you know, crisis in the West Bank evolving at the same time as these two last. That conflicts. was a dangerous precedent because because uh, we took away responsibility from Gaza oh, from is, uh, is, Hamas. Israel legitimized Hamas in the last two rounds of fighting. The Lapid government and then the Netanyahu government basically said Hamas, they're the good guys. We can talk to them. They're telling the Islamic Jihad to calm down. Yeah. They're helping us. This was a very significant moment diplomatically. But I think, I think, I don't know, but I think that those notions came from the deep state-ish, uh, the, the, the generals, I, right? The generals and the IDF. It all comes from the security... Establishment. Establishment, right? It well, didn't come from the politicians, really. Well, um, That's how I, I, it felt I, I, to I me. Th I think it's different. I think the security establishment is an easy scapegoat for the politicians because Netanyahu could easily decide to treat Hamas as they are the ones responsible and give that kind of order and the defense minister would follow through, and the military would hit Hamas installations. I think it's very easy for the politicians in Israel to blame this deep state that you mentioned, which is the security forces, the Supreme Court. Um, all these years, I thought that Netanyahu was blocking initiatives from the right wing against the judicial system, for example, because the judicial system is the ultimate babysitter, right? For him, the way to stop crazy ideas on the right was to let them roll through and get stopped by the court and then blame the court for it. Of course, if you remove the power of the court to do that, Netanyahu would find a different babysitter. I think it would be the American administration. And then what are we going to do? Dismantle the United States? Um, but it's the same with the military. I agree that there is this thinking in the Israeli security establishment that says, okay, if we can contain this to the Islamic Jihad, and not face a full-on confrontation with Hamas, and then maybe also ignite the Lebanese border and face Hezbollah and ignite the territories in East Jerusalem and have another guardian of the world situation, which then we had, I think, 11 or 12 Israelis killed, one of them a relative of mine. Uh, my, my wife's uncle was killed during the guardian of the walls in a lynch in the city of Lod. He was driving home from work, and five, I think, or six Arab residents of the city stoned his car, um, so and he died from his wounds. And so I think the security establishment says, okay, we don't want to reach that point again. 
we want to keep it contained. If the politicians, if the government came to a clear decision to do the opposite, maybe they would object it and they would leak to the press that they objected it. And that's where your deep state theory would come into play. But it would be carried out nonetheless. And I think Netanyahu is Hopefully. much closer, much closer to their view of the world than he admits on you know, social media and in interviews where he likes to play this little game of, you know, I wanted to do it, but the generals or the court or Joe Biden stopped me. This was a bit better this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's touch a little bit because we don't have much time, but uh, what's, what's going on with uh, Biden and Bibi, and Bibi Israel, the, and the also good, the, the upcoming friend. elections? Yeah. What's going to happen? So first of all, I think with, with Biden and Netanyahu, I do believe they will meet before the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if Netanyahu will be invited to the White House. There is another solution. There's going to be the UN uh, mm-hmm. you know, gathering in September. And in the UN, it's a bit like, you know, a family in, um, in the UN, it's a bit like a family doctor in Kupat Cholim in Israel, right? In the afternoon, the doctor sits in his or her office and they see this like end, endless stream of parents coming with their kids. You know, this one has um, something in their nose and this one got a scratch in, uh, in the yard and whatever. So Biden's going to be sitting in some hotel room or maybe at the American embassy to the UN, and this endless stream of leaders are going to come and meet him. So maybe Bibi will be one of them, and that will kind of solve the issue. And at some point, he'll fall asleep. Um, it Probably. Dep- it depends if Bibi keeps it interesting and lively. No, maybe um, not during the I, Bibi part. I, but. I, I think Biden gets more animated by stories from the past these days. And with ah, Bibi, yeah. there's a lot of stories, right? They've known each other for 40 years, yeah, and yeah. you know they have the Obama years when Biden was kind of like... The, the one person Israel got along with better. It would be like talking to grandpa about the yeah, good old days. Yeah, exactly. They can, you know, they, <laughs> they can do that probably. Um, so I, I think that will be resolved. I do think Netanyahu has decided that passing the judicial legislation in what we call now the salami uh, uh, system. system, where basically you do a slice and then you wait. Then you do the next slice is going to work much better for him because the idea of passing it all at once um, ignited the protest movement here and the protest movement got all the international headlines and attention and eventually we got to the president of the United States and the president of France and the leaders of Germany and Britain and other countries telling Netanyahu this is a really bad idea. I don't see that same dynamic evolve for smaller pieces of legislation that will be done one by one. But why did Biden, this, this I don't get, why did he choose to get involved in this to get involved to get to start this you know bb just came back after a year and a half it was yeah. a good opportunity and also he knows that there's elections coming right in he the needs US. yeah why why maybe it was ill advised i will give two parts to this answer first of all i think the main theme of biden's presidency is the protection of liberal democracy in the world today and the issue here in israel is It's been presented as democracy, but it's really about liberal democracy. It's about the liberal values and the liberal way of life in Israel. Because you can make an argument from the right wing that there is also a democratic element to the changes they want to make, right? The majority. Uh, The real issue here is the protection of uh, liberal uh, um, democracy. and, and What is liberal democracy? Well, I think when we're talking about the issues, for example of the uh, the easiest example of course is the issue of the override clause 
right, that gives the smallest possible majority in the Knesset the ability to overcome Supreme Court decisions. And if the Supreme Court says that a law or a governmental decision hurts my rights or your rights, smallest possible majority in the Knesset can come and say, okay, we want to do it anyway. But even on the issue of the judicial appointments, I think if you give complete control to the politicians, to the government in power, over the judicial appointments, they are going to appoint judges that will be more committed to certain, I think, religious views. And eventually, that will become the law of the land. And I think this is what is scaring a lot of the people in the streets. There is the issue of the process and the checks and balances. All of that is true. But at the end of the day, it goes back to what I said earlier. Israeli politics, in my opinion, is mostly about the question of identity and religiosity. And there is a vision of a more technocratic democracy, and there is a question of liberal democracy. And I think if we go back to Biden for a second, the main theme of his presidency is the protection of liberal democracy in the United States and abroad. This was what he ran against Trump on in 2020. This is what the Democrats ran on in 2022 and had a surprisingly good midterm election. This is why he's supporting Ukraine against Putin. This is what's guiding his uh, China policy and these statements on Taiwan that his administration keeps contradicting and he returns to them again and again. And for him to see a very close ally like Israel, which the United States supports annually with $3.8 billion in security funding. Of course, America gets something from it as well. We buy their weapons, all true, but still not a lot of countries get that level of support from the United States annually. To see that kind of ally slide in the more Hungarian, Turkish directions in terms of how democracy is managed in the country, I think would be a very problematic issue. And there would be a, an ideological issue it would be also a question of consistency for him in you know his commitment and i think for him that's reason number 1 reason number 2 he's a democrat in today's american political system the democrats care a lot about the jewish community whereas the republicans care about the evangelical vote and for the american jewish community this has become a very important issue uh, i visited los angeles 3 months ago for a conference that we did haaretz and ucla university and I met uh, groups of donors in the LA area, people who are very involved in the Jewish community, donated a lot of money to different purposes in Israel. And when I say different purposes, they were not, well, at least most of them, you know, people who donate to the New Israel Fund. Not that I think there's any problem with that, but these were people who donate to hospitals. Friends of the IVF. Yeah, hospitals, Magen David Adom. They didn't want to talk about Iran. They didn't want to talk about the Palestinians. They wanted to talk about the judicial overall. They were, they were scared that Israel was becoming a much more religious, conservative country. You really believe they were scared? Yes, I saw it in their eyes. I mean, really? I, I, I was much less scared than they were. And, and I'm concerned about this issue. They were really scared about it. You know, they said... Yeah, but were they? Yes, they I were. I mean, come on. They, they probably went afterwards to like Froyo or something. Or the, okay. The, I, I mean, they didn't add. They weren't like, like no, but, I don't know, but waking no, up in a cold sweat. No, no, but I think for older people and people who have, you know invested a lot of time and money and effort in support for Israel, it's a real issue. They look at it and say, wait a second. Or mm -hmm. they like to talk about it with their New York Times reading buddies. Like, I mean, isn't that a possibility that it's just well, the, the hot it, topic and it, they're like, it, oh, well, we're frightened. Maybe, yeah, right. maybe, but I think the fact that it got to President Biden shows you that this has real power in the American Jewish community. I think Biden would not have intervened if he thought that this was something that would hurt him electorally. But I think it doesn't. I think it may even help him because today... Do you today think he's thinking that clearly right now? 
Listen, I, I, I think you know. I wanted to ask you about that because you, you know the how the administration yeah. works. Up so close. I was wondering. I'll give, you, if, I'll give you an example. We had a politician here in Israel who was on the older side and held public office, you know, after, you know, having the number eight in front of them, which was Shimon Peres. Now, you cannot compare the responsibilities of American presidents and Israeli presidents, worlds apart. But I did get to see, because I covered Paris. I'm not covering Biden right now, but I did get to see how a, politi- how a politician like that gets managed, okay? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of thought and carefulness and preparation being put into their interactions and their meetings and what they do. But... I don't think it would be right to think that because Biden has these funny quips in public, which, by the way, he had 20 years ago as well, right? I mean, this was the Bidenisms were always there. I agree. It's gotten worse. I agree. But they were always there. But I don't think it would be wise to say, oh, he's completely lost it. There's nothing in there. He's not thinking. I don't think that's the case at all. And I think when he spoke about this issue specifically, and he spoke off the cuff, it was not prepared remarks, when he got off that flight to North Carolina three months ago and said they have to stop it in Israel, they cannot go... That was actually a bit of a younger Biden than you see in some of his speeches today um, on internal issues in America. I think he gets that, you know, this is important to a segment of his voters and donors and and people who are influential in the Democratic Party. And I don't think he's going to lose any votes because of it. I think in today's political reality in the U.S., yes, if Biden took, you know, a much more severe step against Israel, like, I don't know, cutting military aid, he would lose some Jewish votes over it. But criticizing Netanyahu, does not cost you in the American Jewish community today and maybe even helps you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you think that he's going to debate in the upcoming elections? Let's see if he runs, first of all. I know that they say he's running. I'm not 100% convinced that... Let's see if he that's walks. Really, that's really... Yeah, you know. <laughs> Listen, I think, I think if, if, if you're in, in the shoes of this administration and you tomorrow morning the president says, I'm not running for re-election, he immediately becomes a lame duck for the remainder of his term. If they keep saying he's running, he's running, he's running, so you know the lame duck thing gets pushed off, and they wait and see what happens on the Republican side. If it's Trump, maybe they run just because the hatred for Trump in certain parts of the population are so strong, and the memories of you know the last uh, months of his presidency are so bleak that Biden can, you know, win Slide. it. Yeah, without debating, with just saying, listen, I mean, you could say, what's the point in debating, right? We had three debates last time. Nothing has changed. I'm the same Biden. He's the same Trump. The voters will decide. I think if it's a different candidate, then Biden will have a real dilemma. I mean, if you have a young, you know, DeSantis or, um, I don't know who else is realistic. I don't know, Nikki Haley. Pence. Pence, yeah. So, you know, the the... the, the ramifications are so huge that maybe there will be pressure on him to quit whereas if it's biden and trump i think maybe they say we can just slide this one hmm. wow well, it's bound to be interesting yeah oh we'll have to do another episode okay <laughs> we'd, we'd love it is there a chance that you'll uh, fly out i'll probably be there for part of the campaign i mean yeah. you know listen we we had you know our three years in the u.s it was amazing it was a wonderful time but now we're here and you know very very have our feet, you know, deep in the mud of the kibbutz. But uh, I do want to go there for the campaign and cover what's going to happen. And I think if Trump runs again, it's going to be as crazy as 2016. And I I was there for the last two weeks of that election. And I even made money because I put a bet with a close friend, another journalist, that Donald Trump is going to win. My friend said... Can we? No fucking way. And does that pass on your podcast? <laughs> yeah, that passes. Um, 
and uh, he had to buy me a steak dinner in New York afterward. Many people lost. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But those but, days. But right? 2020, I was convinced he was losing. I have to say. I mean, mm-hmm. 2020, I really thought because I, I was there and I was traveling in the country, and I, I just felt like you know what happened during COVID and his response. Without COVID, he would win probably. Maybe. I, it's hard to say what if, but I think COVID really hurt him. Not just because of what happened. I mean, there are some leaders who actually benefited from COVID, like Netanyahu in the beginning. In mm-hmm. the beginning, later COVID hurt Netanyahu. Too, but I think in the beginning, Netanyahu, you know, really took that opportunity and said, I'm going to play the responsible adult now and tell you on live television every evening how to brush your teeth um, and how to wash your hands. But Trump looked so unserious and he could not recover from that. Okay, it was really fascinating. You're going back to Nachal Oz now. We really appreciate that you came. My pleasure, not guys. obvious. Um, anything Although, sh- it, you know, it makes sense that you'd want to get out of there. <laughs> 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 Do you still have cheder uh, ochel and all that stuff? The kibbutz is mostly privatized, but okay. what does happen is once a month on Friday night, there is like a, you know, Friday dinner, like in the good old days in the cheder ochel, in the dining room where everybody comes together and it's the most fun in the world. You guys go? Yeah, of Every course. Friday? Every Friday? It's oh, not every, awesome. it's once a month. Ah, once okay, a month. Okay, okay. And on holidays, it's all celebrated together. So there is still this very strong sense of community. And there's a pool. Oh my God, of course. Come yeah. on. That's why we really live there. Yeah. In the last <laughs> second of the podcast, the truth comes out. <laughs> yeah. Maybe one day you come and record an episode in okay. Nachalos next time. Yeah. Okay. In the pool. We'll in the make pool. like a flotation. Yeah. In, <laughs> in the pool. I'm into that. Uh, what can we plug? Uh, Amir Tibon on... Uh, on haaretz.com. I used to say Twitter, but I don't know if that will exist by the time we, ah, we finish yeah. this. But yeah, obviously you can read me on haaretz.com. You can get a writer alert mm, and then yes. you get all of my articles in your inbox. I'm very accessible. Send me hate emails. You do lectures. S- lectures, stories, very important tips, ideas for stories. Mm-hmm. So um, for everyone who's listening. Okay. Amir Tibon, A-M-I-R, Tibon, T-I-B-O-N. Exactly, exactly. Not T-Bone. <laughs> you can, that's fine as well. I, I had a lot of that in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> I, I took it in a good way. Thank you so much for coming. Thank really you, guys. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Bye, guys. You. See Bye. you next time.